So a group of guys went overseas, and they hired a local boy to cook and clean for them. They were a bunch of jokesters, so they quickly took advantage of his seeming naivete. They smeared Vaseline on the stove handles. They put buckets of water over the door. They even nailed his shoes to the floor during the night. Well, day after day, the young boy took the brunt of their practical jokes without saying anything. Well, after a while, the men started to feel guilty about what they were doing. So they went up to the young boy and they said, look, we know that these pranks are not funny for you and we're sorry. We're never going to take advantage of you again. The boy smiled and he asked, so no more sticky on stove? Guys responded, nope. No more water on door? They said, no more water on door. No more nail shoes to floor? Nope, we'll stop that too. Okay, the boy said with a wide grin, no more spit in soup. (laughs) I start with that to say this. Most of us, when we're wronged, look for ways to retaliate. When we've been wronged, we tend to go after someone. Now, we're going to learn today is that you and I are called to love like Jesus loved. Three weeks ago, we learned that if you want to grow, well, you're going to have to let some things go. Two weeks ago, we defined a disciple as someone who lovingly follows Jesus and intentionally helps others follow him. And so is there someone who you can help lovingly follow Jesus? Have you been reaching out to someone who can help you grow? Last weekend, we discovered how a disciple learns and loves and lives God's Word. Our focus today is on the premiere. We could even call it the distinctive mark of a disciple. Well, let's listen, look, listen to what Jesus said. I'm going to invite you to stand. It's two verses, and so the reading will go very quick, but the impact of this is stunning. Words of Jesus. I'll read if you listen. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You can take a seat. Here's our main point. A disciple is one who loves like Jesus loves. Let's begin by making some observations. Note first, the word love is used four times. This is the Greek word agapeo. It's a selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love resulting from a decision of the will. Oh, and it's in the present tense, meaning we're to keep on loving. Secondly, that phrase one another is a reciprocal pronoun. It's found three times. We're to commit to one another because we're in community with each other. 
And final observation, the personal pronoun you is used six times. And it's emphatic. There is no way for you and I to slide, to slide out from underneath this. Because you means me and it means you. Here's the context. Jesus had just celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples. Judas had left to begin his betrayal. Jesus knows that difficult days are ahead for his disciples. So he gives them a mandate to love. He gives them a model of love and then a manifestation through love. So no doubt our circumstances are different from the disciples, but the difficulties we face are similar. Our world is less tolerant of our faith. Our religious liberties seem to be vanishing, and it's easy for us to get sideways with other Christ followers. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need each other now more than ever. And I mentioned this at our annual meeting last Sunday, a divided nation needs a united church. Well, let's dive in. First, a mandate to love. Jesus could have told his disciples anything. But here's what he chose. He wanted to give them a command to love one another. The first part of verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Now, the word new doesn't mean it was just invented. It has the idea of being qualitatively new, fresh, the word commandment means it's a charge, it's a commission. It's not a suggestion, it's essential. This is not something that's optional for the Christ follower. No, this is a matter of obedience. This is a charge from Jesus Christ himself right before he goes to the cross to die in our place. So let's pause and ponder then, why does Jesus refer to this as a new commandment? After all, Leviticus 19.18, written hundreds of years earlier, says we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. In addition, Matthew 5.14, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said we're to love our enemies. So in what sense is loving one another something new? Well, first, it's a command given by Jesus to the church, not to Israel. Second, it's the beginning of the one another statements in the New Testament. And the third reason leads to our next point, number two, a model of love. <laughs> Friends, we don't have to wonder what this love looks like because Jesus himself is our example. Look at the second part of verse 34, just as I have loved you, so also you also are to love one another. The commandment is new because we're not only to love others as we love ourselves, we're to go above by loving one another as Jesus loves us. So Jesus is our model and he's our motivation. We're to express love for one another to the extent that Jesus loves each of us. Jesus repeats this for emphasis over in John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Let's ponder how this chapter begins. Jesus does the dirty work of a servant. 
He grabs a towel and a basin, and he washes the foul feet of his disciples. Would you notice, look at verse 1 of chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus could have just quickly wiped off their feet, but that phrase to the end means he loved them to the outermost. So what did he do? He modeled what love looks like by rising from the table, laying aside his outer garments, taking a towel, pouring water into a basin, washing 24 feet, and drying them with the towel. And according to verses 14 and 15, this, then, is the model of the kind of love the followers of Jesus are to demonstrate to and for one another. We read there, verses 14 and 15, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I've given you an example, that you should do just as I have done to you. So the newness of the command is not because it's novel, but it's because of its very nature. We're to love as Jesus loves. What does that love look like? It means that we serve one another. Number three, manifestation through love. When we love like Jesus, this then becomes a strong witness to the world. Verse 35, by this, Jesus said, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's not our preferences. It's not our politics. It's not even our principles that will convince people that we follow Christ. The love we manifest for one another is the strongest testimony of the truth we claim to believe. The 11 disciples would survive and thrive only as they obeyed this mandate to love. Now, in order for us to truly love one another, we must recognize love is not so much an emotion. It's an active emulation of the one who first loved us. It has nothing to do with self-fulfillment, everything to do with self-sacrifice. That phrase, all people, refers to a totality. People will perceive we are disciples of Jesus only when they see us loving each other as Jesus loves. I'm reminded of a song from the 60s, which I won't sing for you. But you probably know it. They'll know we are Christians by our love. We'll work with one another. We'll work side by side. Yeah, they'll know we are Christians by our love. So the love we have for one another should lead people to immediately think the love that the Lord has for us. So here's some questions. The questions are easy to ask. They're hard to answer. Do people know that you're a Christian by the way you love other Christians? Can people tell you are a disciple by how devoted you are to fellow followers of Christ? Let me get at that a different way. Is there a believer who really bothers you? 
why are you looking at me? <laughs> yeah, my guess is there is, and there's probably more than one who bug you. Do you find it difficult to love those who are difficult? Listen, we're commanded to love and not hate on one another. But this might be good news for you. You don't necessarily need to like the person or even hang out with them, but you're commanded to love them. Ponder 1 John 2.11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So, in the midst of all the conflict and the confusion and the anger and the vitriol in our culture right now, let's not let the donkey and the elephant divide what the lamb has done for us on the cross. So perhaps you can relate to this statement, to live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, oh, that's a different story, right? You know, I was pondering the uh, disciples, like what was it like to be part of that group of 12? It had to be hard. I mean, Peter was not easy to be around, right? He's always talking. He had this brash personality that probably irritated others on the team. I wonder how Peter's brother felt, Andrew. I mean, Peter, James, and John got all this extra time with Jesus. Andrew didn't. We do know the other disciples got jealous when James and John angled for the top spots in the cabinet. And I can't imagine the tension between Simon and Matthew. Who was Simon? The zealot. Who was Matthew? His background was the tax collector. So Simon was part of a radical political party, the zealots. They used force to achieve their goal. What was their goal? Liberating Israel from Roman rule. Matthew worked for Rome. He collected taxes from the Israelites, lining his own pockets in the process. Listen, they had natural conflict because of their politics, but they had Christ in common. And they were learning how to love one another just as Jesus loved each of them. Tertullian lived in the third century when opposition to Christianity was super intense. Listen to what he wrote about how pagans viewed Christians. Quote, It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. Here's the brand. See, they say, how they love one another. How they're even ready to die for one another. One heathen said this about Christians, they love one another almost before they know one another. George Whitfield and Charles Wesley had significant theological differences. They had huge conflict, major heated conversations. One day a friend of Whitfield's asked him and he said, do you think we, when we get to heaven, shall see John Wesley there? Whitfield quickly answered, no, I don't think we shall. 
Well, his friend was delighted with the answer until Whitfield continued. I believe Mr. John Wesley will have a place so near the throne of God that such poor creatures as you and I will be so far off as to be hardly able to see him. Whitfield and Wesley went at it. They strongly disagreed. Whitfield loved Wesley, listen, even though he was convinced he was wrong. Friends, he lived out this truth. A disciple is one who loves like Jesus loves. I'm reminded of the famous line from Augustine. Pastor Brown often quoted this, and he lived and ministered this way. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And so let me circle back around and ask the question a different way. Is there enough evidence in your life of love for fellow believers for someone to conclude that you must be a disciple of Jesus. And so let's live out the mandate to love. Let's follow the model of love and then let's demonstrate and manifest that love in practical ways. We're going to transition now. We're continuing to speak of love. The Bible makes it clear that we're to love like Jesus loves, which means we're to love the little, the least, and the lost. And I should have done this last night. I did mention it at 9 o'clock, but I want to mention it now. As we transition now, I'm going to be talking about the sanctity of life. And so parents, if you have younger children and you don't think they're ready to hear this, I just... Uh, just feel free to step out or feel free to stay. I just didn't want you to get blindsided. So we're to love the little, the least, and the lost. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew nineteen fourteen: Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 40, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So recently, the Guardian newspaper, that's out of the UK, they ran a story exploring the greatest photo of the 20th century. We think about it, they could have chosen a lot of things. That's 100 years of history. I mean, maybe they could have chosen something from politics or sports. Maybe an action shot from one of our world wars. Maybe man walking on the moon. There was none of those. According to them, the greatest picture in the 20th century was a picture of a pre-born baby in the womb. The Guardian chose a stunning photo from the April 1965 edition of Life magazine, which featured an 18-week fetus on its cover. This caused a worldwide sensation. This particular issue became a spectacular success, becoming the fastest-selling copy in Life magazine's entire history. In full color, crystal clear detail, 
The picture shows an unborn child in its amniotic sac, vulnerable yet serene. Its eyes are closed. Its tiny, perfectly formed fists are clutched to its chest. Early in the week when I uh, looked at that picture, I didn't notice something. I did notice later in the week, down here at the bottom left, in white, it says drama of life before birth. So since the landmark Supreme Court decision handed down on January 22, 1973, I'm pausing here on purpose so that we catch the gravity of what I'm about to say. An estimated 62 million Children in America have lost their lives through abortion. That's the combined population of 26 states. According to Life News, just weeks into our new year, over one million babies have already been aborted across the globe, making abortion the number one cause of death outranking heart disease and cancer. So, let me say three things. Number one, as a church, we're not going to cave on biblical truth. Our aim is not to be politically correct, but to be biblically correct. So we're going to stand on God's word and we're going to teach what the Bible says on all topics it teaches on. That Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. That God is the creator. That marriage is between one man and one woman for life. And that life begins at conception. And it's time for churches to speak out and to speak out to those who are confused and ensnared. Let me quick, be quick to say we're not going to clobber sinners. Well, let's remember that the gospel is for sinners, which means it's for me and it's for you. It's for each one of us. And it's okay for us to be incensed about evil, but let's make sure that we're always extending love. We're always looking for ways to extend the gospel of grace to people. Number three. We're committed to follow Jesus Christ so we don't cave into sin or clobber people. John 1.14 says this about Jesus. He was full of grace and truth. We see that lived out in John chapter 8 when the woman who was caught in adultery was brought to Jesus. Jesus gave her grace. He said, neither do I condemn you. But he also spoke truth. And he said to her, go and sin no more. And so we're called to minister the truth and do so with grace. You know, we learned last week, truth spoken in love actually leads to forgiveness and freedom. Jesus said in John 8, 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you what? Free. Four verses later, verse 36, so if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Proverbs 14, 25, a truthful witness saves lives, but the one who breathes out lies is deceitful. So let's briefly look, just for a couple minutes, at Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. 
Now the word of the Lord came to me, this is Jeremiah writing, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, God says. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nation. So this passage, along with so many others, establishes the sanctity of human life. This is what God's word says about life in the womb. Now, individuals will have their opinions Organizations will offer their expertise. Politicians will differ about the preborn. But this is what God says. So let's make some observations. The word before is used twice. It moves us back in time from the point of conception to sometime in eternity past. The word I is used four times, <laughs> indicating that God not only is the one speaking, but he is the one at work in the womb. And thirdly, the word you is used five different times. Now this shows that what's in the womb is a person. It's not a blob. It's not a bunch of cells. And so this leads us right into the first truth. The pre-born are people. To borrow a line from Dr. Seuss, a person's a person no matter how small. Verse 5 says, before I formed you in the womb. Before Jeremiah was even conceived, God knew him as a person. The word formed is the Hebrew word used to describe the creative process that a potter goes through as he or she takes clay and shapes it into a mold. It means to squeeze into a predetermined shape. It's also the same word found in Genesis 2-7 where we read the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. Now the fact that preborn are people is no small point. Scott Cox points out that the first thing any society does if it's going to mistreat a particular class of people is to dehumanize them. Sadly, wrongly, sinfully, some theologians in the 19th century espoused the idea that blacks had no soul. Why'd they do that? In order to justify slavery. So how much easier is it for our society today to do this when the voice and even the form of those who are being dehumanized and mistreated cannot be heard or seen because their cries are silent? And that's why Ultrasounds and pictures of the preborn in the womb are so powerful. Secondly, the preborn are pre known. The next phrase, I knew you, the word know in Hebrew speaks of a personal, intimate knowledge. It was used of Adam knowing Eve. The idea is God has a close, personal commitment, an intimate relationship with every person he creates. Watch this, even before he creates him or her. So if we are known to God even before he began his creative work, how much more are we known after conception? Number three, the preborn are prized. Look at the next clause. And before you were born, I consecrated you. That word is used of setting someone or something apart for special and specific use. Even before Jeremiah was born, he was set apart for a special task. And number four, the preborn have a purpose. <laughs> Last part of verse 5, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. 
Jeremiah had a job to do, and so do you. Would you know that God's word is not just for one group of people, it's for the nations. By the way, the missions committee recommended the deacons just approved our newest GO team partners, Blake and Anna Patterson. You'll be hearing more about them. Anna's the daughter of Edgewood members Matt and Laura Baker. They leave this week to serve in Southeast Asia. In Psalm 139, verse 16, David recounts how God created him with purpose. He says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God has the length of our days all figured out. And when God creates, he does so with purpose. He has plans and he has purposes for the pre-born as well. Uh, Three quick additional thoughts. The exalted lordship of Jesus Christ must lead us to expressions of love and to an ethic of life. Number two, you and I are called to love our neighbors. Among those who are our neighbors are those who are nestled in their mother's wombs. And thirdly, there's no appreciable difference between a preborn baby and a newborn except location. When you think about it, we're all just grown-up embryos. One of our Go Team partners is Pregnancy Resources. I can't wait to share with you some of what God did this past year through this ministry of love and life. Check this out. Over 4,000 unique Visits. That's 5% more than in 2019, and that was with a lot of challenges with COVID. 80% of clients who come to pregnancy resources are abortion-minded, that's what they're thinking, or abortion-vulnerable. When they leave, 84% end up choosing life for their child. That's incredible, and it's our joy to financially support pregnancy resources. Many of you serve there as well. In 2020, 780 free pregnancy tests, 530 free ultrasounds. That's 14% more than in 2019. Check this. Last year, over 500 men were served. That's 85% more than in 2019. Let me put it in perspective. In 2018, 79 men came. Last year, over 500. 50% of those who come have no spiritual beliefs. The staff and volunteers had almost 1,000 spiritual discussions, 18% more than 2019. Over 1,000 class sessions were offered, 729 visits to Bella's Boutique, and over 1,500 free packages of diapers given away. We thought it would be helpful for you to hear from a couple. They're Edgewood members, Tyler and Courtney Richards. They both serve at Pregnancy Resources. Yeah, 
so my name is Tyler Richards. This is my wife, Courtney. Um, we've been coming to Edgewood for about a year and a half or so. Um, the first Sunday we came, our daughter Kerrigan was there with us. Um, Kinley was there with us too. But I remember having Beth Bill hang on to Kerrigan as Courtney took Kinley out of the service. So we've got a three-year-old named Kinley, an almost two-year-old named Kerrigan. Um, if you haven't noticed, we've got a third on the way. Courtney stays home with our girls. She's a, a stay-at-home mom, and then I'm a financial advisor with Edward Jones. Growing up in the church, we have always been pro-life and had the pro-life stance, but it wasn't until after we miscarried our first baby that we really felt the loss of the life. Um, we knew it wasn't a clump of cells that we had lost. We knew it was a baby, and it broke our hearts that um, people out there are doing this willingly and suffering the consequences after they're choosing to have abortions. I think ministry to the preborn and, and loving how Jesus loves, when you think about it, I don't think we're any different to Jesus, whether we're 28 or 29 or preborn or 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, I, I think we're all the same to Jesus, right? Whether we're inside womb or outside womb. And if we're going to try to reflect how Jesus loves us, then we need to make sure that we're loving the preborn just the same as loving those that have been born already. I started serving at Pregnancy Resources over the summer last year. Um, I started off as a receptionist, so answering the phone calls and taking down some client information. And um, I just recently started to um, do some of the training for client advocate. Um, so I will be uh, seeing some clients for pregnancy tests and some other services that we offer here in the future. And I started with Pregnancy Resources in December. Um, they've got a, a trimester training program. So Courtney did the one in the spring, and I did the one in the summer, and then we switched back and forth with taking care of the kids. So um, she went through it first, I went through it second, but I started the first week of December. I intentionally asked to be a receptionist, um, wanting to see what that role was like and working through it. Ideally, with pregnancy resources, you would be trained as a client advocate and as a receptionist, but being a man, there's certain things that are more awkward for me to do than, than what it is for Courtney. So I, I probably shouldn't be giving pregnancy tests to women, as, as a for instance. So I'll most likely be a receptionist in my, my time there. There's a lot of different things that kind of go into it, right? Oftentimes it's what you think of when you think receptionist. Answer the phone and greet people at the desk, but ideally you're incorporating in the love of Christ to it too, right? Because you get, get a first impression with these people. Maybe they've been there before, but maybe they haven't. And especially for me, getting to be at the front desk and talking to the boyfriends and husbands and fiancés and, and whomever else that's there to have a positive impact in that way. So it's, it's all of the normal receptionist things, but it's doing it in a way that you convey Christ's love to them too. Pregnancy Resources, they have an excellent training that you go through beforehand. 
Um, I think my main takeaway from the training and my role there has been to just um, get on the same level as the client, um, kind of sit with them through their crisis, not to judge them and to love them and show them the Christ's love um, through their crisis and um, that there's hope in the end for everyone. If you're considering serving with Pregnancy Resources, we have many different outlets for you. Um, we always need diaper donations, wipes, um, clothing, maternity clothing, um, money donations. There's just so many different ways you could serve at Pregnancy Resources besides being there in person um, meeting with clients, but we could always have those people too. The training is excellent. Um, you will you'll be really happy um, if you go through their training you'll learn a lot and um, if you're pro-life you really should just you really should have these facts under your belt and, and to go along with that exactly as Courtney said when we're talking about how people can be volunteering and what opportunities are there at pregnancy resources and not only is it a gift of your time but sometimes you're just not available during the time frames that pregnancy resources open or you can't get there or can't volunteer for one reason or another, there are different ways that it can be done, but like she said, you can donate money. You can drop off baby blankets, diapers, all of these different things because pregnancy resources, on top of needing people's time, they need some of the tangible things as well. If you're able to, to go, and volunteer your time. There's a Davenport Center, there's a Moline Center, they've got evening hours, they've got daytime hours. So if you can find a way and you want to make it work out, usually they can find a way to make it work out too, but they're always looking for new volunteers for different roles.